Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The Secretary of State is back in Israel trying to stop the war from restarting. The lead starts right now. Secretary Antony Blinken, front and center for negotiations. Can he help secure the release of the eight Americans still being held hostage by the terrorist group Hamas before bombs start dropping again? Plus, one of the innocent Palestinian college students in Vermont describes the moment that the gunman came after him and his friends. He didn't hesitate uh, without a word to just run down the stairs of the porch, pull out a pistol, and start shooting. His family says this crime was motivated by bigotry, so why no hate crime charges? Plus, a gag order just reinstated on Donald Trump, who keeps personally attacking the judge and his clerk in that civil fraud trial, prompting anti-Semitic death threats. The judge's new warning as Trump is ordered once again to zip his lips. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our world lead, where we could be just hours away from the end of the pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas and the resumption of the war and the death and destruction. Both sides said today they're ready if that deal expires at midnight and the war resumes. But behind the scenes, negotiators from Egypt and Qatar say they are scrambling and trying to extend the pause for at least two more days, trying to secure the release of more hostages and to allow more humanitarian aid into the Gaza Strip. We just heard from U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken in Israel after he met with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Blinken said his immediate focus is to try to find a way to extend the ceasefire, but we are already seeing some signs of violence. At least three Israelis were killed and seven others injured, including two Americans, after two members of Hamas fired upon a group of innocent people who had gathered at a bus station in Jerusalem. The terrorists were killed by two Israeli soldiers and an armed civilian. Right now, the Israeli military is waiting for the next group of hostages to be released in exchange for the pending release of Palestinian prisoners from Israeli detention centers. Two women were freed earlier today, separate from the others, because of where they were being held hostage in Gaza, according to Israeli officials. 40-year-old Amit Susana and 21-year-old Mia Shim are now both in Israeli hospitals. After being released by Hamas, they are getting medical checkups. The Israeli government released this video 
of Mia being reunited with her mom and her brother after her release nearly eight weeks after being kidnapped from the Nova Music Festival. CNN's Oren Lieberman starts off, starts off our coverage today from Tel Aviv. And, and Oren, you were just at Blinken's press conference. What did the Secretary of State have to say about the extension of this pause? Jake, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken just wrapped up that press conference here in the hotel behind me a short time ago. Earlier in this day, he met not only with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, but also members of Israel's war cabinet. He said he urged them to continue or, or to consider a longer continuation of this pause in the fighting that would allow for the release of more hostages and more humanitarian aid to go in. He said both of those are an imperative, but he also made clear that the U.S. knows full well, and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has made very clear that when Hamas stops releasing hostages, the war is very much back on. Israel has said that, Hamas has said that, and they came very close early this morning when Hamas waited until the last minute to release the list of the hostages that would be released today. Of course, now we've seen two hostages released earlier, and we're waiting on more at this point. He also gave uh, full support for Israel's war against Hamas, saying Hamas cannot retain control of Gaza. It cannot retain the capacity to carry out the carnage again of the October 7th terror attack. He did say, and this is worth noting and keeping an eye on, that Israel understands the imperative of ongoing humanitarian aid to Gaza. But what does that mean on the ground? Because the humanitarian aid we've seen going over the last week has been a part of the truce agreement. Does it resume immediately or keep going, I should say, when the war itself resumes? For that, we might have an answer very soon here, Jake. And Oren, we're still waiting to see the rest of the hostages uh, who are expected to be released by Hamas today. What, what is uh, the holdup, do you think? Over the course of the past seven days, we have seen one or two times where some hostages are released earlier in the evening and some later. Today's release actually began quite early, before 4 p.m. local time, but it was the two Israeli hostages you mentioned as we wait on some others. Israeli officials believe it's because the hostages are held in different locations, so that takes time. One of the reasons Hamas didn't want Israeli drones flying over Gaza is so that in secret it could move the hostages around and get them together for release. Jake, I'll make one more quick point here. Hamas released or transferred the hostages to the Red Cross in Palestine Square in Gaza City itself. Northern Gaza, which is where Gaza City sits, is one area where Israel has large uh, control over large swaths of the territory there. So it seems Hamas may be showing itself in the open, out in public, that, that Israel does not have complete control over northern Gaza. All right, Oren Lieberman uh, in Tel Aviv, thank you so much. With the pause between Israel and Hamas expected to end soon, the United States is pressing the Israel Defense Forces to do more to curtail civilian casualties as Israel resumes its attempts to eliminate Hamas, the terrorist group that slaughtered more than 1,200 people on October 7th and kidnapped more than 240 of them. First behind the scenes and now increasingly in public, the Biden administration is calling on Israel to do more to reduce the loss of innocent Palestinian life and to allow more humanitarian aid into Gaza, where more than 14,000 Palestinians, many of them women and children, have been killed, according to the Hamas-controlled health ministry. We're going to continue to urge our Israeli counterparts as they go back, uh, they plan to go back to military operations, that they do it in the most discreet, deliberate, careful, cautious way possible. Far too many Palestinians have been killed. Far too many have suffered uh, these past weeks. And we want to do everything possible to 
prevent harm to them and to maximize the assistance that gets to them. This week, as recently as yesterday afternoon, Israeli officials, including a major general from the Israel Defense Forces here in Washington, D.C., briefed members of Congress. Sources familiar with the briefing tell me that the major general told Congress that Israel does not find the Palestinian fatality numbers to be credible. And while the IDF does not have their own death toll number at this time, they estimate that they've killed about 5,000 members of Hamas. Either way, the death toll in Gaza of civilians has been staggering. A New York Times analysis from November 25th concluded that, quote, while wartime death tolls will never be exact, experts say that even a conservative reading of the casualty figures reported from Gaza shows that the pace of death during Israel's campaign has few precedents in this century. People are being killed in Gaza more quickly, they say, than in even the deadliest moments of U.S.-led attacks in Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan, unquote. And even if one assumes 5,000 of those killed are Hamas, the civilian death toll by any credible account is more than 5,000. Why? Well, there are a few reasons. Some experts primarily blame Hamas. One of the reasons those casualty numbers are so high is because Israel is engaged with an enemy that has deliberately embedded itself amongst the civilian population in one of the most densely populated areas of the world. So the Israeli commanders face a legal, and I think in many cases, a moral dilemma. The need to uh, use their combat capability to attack the enemy and achieve their tactical and operational objectives with knowledge that there's only so much they can do to mitigate civilian risk. It is also true that Leaders of Hamas do not seem particularly worried about the damage that they are doing to the innocent people of Gaza. It is also true that some national security sources in the United States say that Hamas has prevented Palestinians in Gaza from trying to heed Israel's warnings to flee south. And yet, conservative estimates are right. With 15,000 killed, even if 5,000 of them are Hamas, that's still a two-to-one ratio of civilians to Hamas. That's a lot of civilians who have been killed. Is Netanyahu going to continue to ignore President Biden on this issue of civilian casualties? Well, Jake, uh, we're not magicians. Uh, there's no magic uh, way to, to um, dramatically reduce uh, collateral damage when Hamas's deliberate goal, intentional goal, is to increase uh, Gaza uh, casualties in order for you to ask me that precise question. You see, Hamas is, wants to stop the war in a cynical way by it effectively killing its own people by placing them in harm's way. If there were some magical solution where we could tweezer people out uh, and, and just hit the, the rocket launcher that's shooting rockets at Israelis, we would do it. We do try to reduce uh, unnecessary civilian casualties, but the reality is that there's no magic. But when you talk to lawmakers and policymakers in Washington, D.C., even those very supportive of Israel, 
Republicans and Democrats say that the IDF is not doing enough to prevent civilian casualties in Gaza. The United States is still not, not pleased that things are not up to the standards that we would, would expect or, or hope. Um, and, and we're continuing to pressure Israel uh, about that. And I think that that is a discourse that's incredibly important. These are people's lives that, that need to be protected. It's not just the number of IDF strikes that they're conducting. It is also the type of weapons that the IDF is using. Though the Israelis are using a lot of precision, precision munitions, Biden administration sources say that the IDF is also using plenty of big, dumb, non-precise bombs that flatten everything in their path. Now, the IDF briefed Congress this week that those big, dumb bombs are being used because they're the only way to get through to the tunnels where Hamas has been embedding itself under the population. And the IDF says they are warning Palestinians to leave those areas with leaflets and with phone calls and that Hamas is dissuading or even preventing Palestinians from fleeing. But beyond that, Biden administration officials also tell CNN that the IDF is taking risks with civilian lives that the U.S. and NATO simply would not be taking and that the IDF could be doing more to protect innocent lives from being lost. Under humanitarian international law, strikes must be proportional, meaning that the military benefit must be weighed against the potential loss of life. But there is no exact ratio or formula written into the law. It's imperative that Israel act in accordance with international humanitarian law and the laws of war, even when confronting a terrorist group that respects neither. Simply put, if the IDF is willing to risk more civilian deaths to kill more members of Hamas, than the U.S. might be. The question then arises, does that mean what they're doing is a violation of humanitarian international law? And the truth is, not necessarily, because the vagaries of these laws do not require any sp specific proportion. And yet that doesn't mean that they couldn't be doing better and in accordance more with what the U.S. would want them to do. This week, according to sources familiar with the briefing, the IDF tried to reassure members of Congress that as the ground campaign moves to southern Gaza, they will try to do better and they will try to do more leafleting to warn innocent people to evacuate areas and they will try to create safe zones if such a thing can exist in Gaza ahead of time. Before Israel resumes major military operations, it must put in place humanitarian civilian protection plans that minimize further casualties of innocent Palestinians by clearly and precisely designating areas and places in southern and central Gaza where they can be safe and out of the line of fire. The IDF also briefed members of Congress that the ground campaign has allowed them to use more precision targeting, that the special operations combat has allowed them to reduce civilian deaths. They say that there were zero civilian casualties in the Al-Shifa hospital when they conducted operations in the hospital. Though, of course, we also know that operations around the hospital did lead to deaths. And now, of course, a vast number of Palestinians have fled to the south. And that places an additional burden on Israel to avoid further displacement, further loss of innocent lives. And we should note 
These numbers, 14,000, 5,000, 1,500, each civilian death is a tragedy. It's a life cut short. It's not a statistic. It's awful to talk about this in numbers, but we're, here we are. I want to bring in CNN's Alex Marquardt and MJ Lee. Um, and these are, these are issues that the White House has been grappling with from the very beginning of this, first behind the scenes and now increasingly in front of the cameras, um, trying to get uh, the Israelis to, to take more measures to reduce um, civilian loss of life. And this is something that uh, Blinken actually brought up with Prime Minister Netanyahu earlier today. Yeah, the Biden administration would like to see this release of hostages continue as long as possible. But they know that, is, is, that this phase, as the Israelis are calling it, uh, will soon be over and Israel will start its military campaign back up again. And so the Biden administration has been very loudly saying in public and behind the scenes they want to see a very different military campaign from the Israelis. The expectation is that Israel is going to move into southern Gaza, where, of course, so many of the hundreds of thousands, almost two million, in fact, uh, of the displaced are. We've seen this extraordinary level of destruction in northern Gaza, all of these thousands of civilian deaths, as you just pointed out. So Secretary Blinken today laying out what he called this imperative for these humanitarian civilian protections plans, aside from these designated areas. He also talked about uh, Israel going out of its way to avoid damaging uh, uh, civilian critical infrastructure like hospitals, power, um, water facilities. He said that northern Gazans should be allowed to return to the north uh, when conditions allow. Now, Blinken did say that Netanyahu and the war cabinet did listen and, and did agree. But of course, it does remain to be seen whether this urging uh, is heeded. Um, Blinken saying very specifically, intent is where you start, but results are fundamentally what matters. And MJ, we could be just hours away from the end of this pause, and it really just it depends upon Hamas producing more hostages in some ways. Yeah, I mean, we're at the stage of this pause where really every single day uh, we could get to a point where the war resumes at the stroke of midnight. Uh, but the wild thing is that the way that this deal is structured, uh, Hamas produces a list every day, Israel does or doesn't agree, and then the truce, the pause is extended. Um, the status of the pause basically hinges right now on the day-to-day -day whims of Hamas. And as Alex and I have reported on, there have been numerous instances already where Hamas has violated uh, the agreement, right? Uh, the Red Cross officials have not been in yet. They were supposed to be in by day four. We Let me just interrupt for one second because uh, the IDF just announced that six more hostages are now in the hands of the Red Cross. And I think we're, we're seeing them, uh, some live images of them right now at the Rafah crossing. Uh, between uh, Gaza uh, and Egypt. The, the, those are them but right now. They look like uh, uh, young women, uh, maybe in their teens or early 20s. Uh, that's, we'll, we'll find out more about them. I'm sorry to interrupt, uh, but just some breaking news right now as, as these uh, hostages are released. And just another reminder, of course, that all of this in the short term, there's obviously a context that goes back dozens, if not hundreds of years, but all this in the short term began on October 7th because of terrorist organization going into Israel uh, and killing more than 1,200 people and kidnapping more than 240. I'm sorry, MJ, go ahead. No, I mean, we did reporting on how the list 
came up and was a serious issue yesterday. There was this uh, back and forth over whether they could produce the 10 hostages, which is a part of the deal. At one point, they were producing seven women and children, but trying to add three bodies to count for the total of 10. Uh, so the fact that three the corpses? truth three bodies. Yes. Oh. So the fact that the truce hinges on Hamas basically keeping its word uh, is a little wild that, that that is the stage of the war that we are at right now. And I think we're about to find out whether Hamas says we are running out of women and children. We have to move on to the next stage. We don't know if there's going to be a, another right. deal. Trusting the word of people who burn babies and and kill grandparents. There was an expectation, according to the officials who MJ and I have been speaking with, that in this two-day pause extension, uh, days uh, seven and eight, that there would be around 20 more women and children. But we do think we're getting to a point here where Hamas will essentially run out uh, of women and children. And the question becomes, do they start to release elderly men? Uh, Do they start talking about some of those uh, Israeli soldiers? Will Hamas want more for them? So we are really getting to uh, what could be a tipping point once these women and children are are all released. Is that when Israel decides, all right, um, enough is enough. We're going to relaunch this operation. Yeah, I mean, my impression is that this the the war could resume in the next day or two. Absolutely. That's that's what my sources are telling me. MJ Alex, good to see you as always. Great reporting. Moments ago, we heard from Congressman George Santos ahead of that big vote tomorrow uh, that it it could expel him from Congress. It it is a predetermined necessity for some members in this body to engage in this smear campaign to destroy me. Coming up next, a man who wrote a book about the New York Republican, plus a CNN exclusive, the lawyer uh, that cooked up a plan to keep Donald Trump in office is now cooperating with prosecutors. What is the significance of that? We'll discuss coming up. Our politics lead is on Capitol Hill, where it is time for Congressman George Santos to face the music. And no, not the music from the Broadway show he claims to have produced. That's the Spider-Man musical, if you forgot. Yeah, he really claimed he produced that. He didn't. Today, the House debated, and tomorrow it will vote on whether to expel the New York Republican. This after a bipartisan House Ethics Committee report concluded that Santos broke federal laws, stole cash from his campaign, and delivered a, quote, constant series of lies to voters and donors. Santos allegedly spent thousands of campaign dollars on vacations, elaborate meals, Botox, more Botox, and OnlyFans. If you don't know what OnlyFans is, you can look it up. But Santos today remained characteristically defiant, continuing to play the victim and refusing to resign. I will not stand by quietly. They want me out of this body. The people of the 3rd District of New York sent me here. If they want me out, they're going to have to go silence those people and take the hard vote. Still going with the sweater under the jacket, huh? He called the expulsion vote bullying. After checking the dictionary for bullying, I can tell you that the George Santos definition does not seem to hold. He, he also told reporters today that if he does get kicked out of Congress, he may participate in ABC's Dancing with the Stars. And I'm sure they would accept. We can only hope that that turns out to be just another one of his lies, though. Only five members of Congress in history have ever been expelled from the House chamber. It does require a two-thirds majority vote, which is a high bar. And while many Republicans appear ready to kick him out, the new House Speaker is giving some cover to those who may vote otherwise. 
we're going to allow people to vote their conscience. I personally have real reservations about doing this. I, I'm, I'm concerned about a precedent that may be set for that. Conscience? Interesting. The speaker says some of his reservations stem from the fact that Santos has not been convicted in a court of law. And that's true. He hasn't yet. Santos is set to go on trial next year. Santos has pleaded not guilty to 23 federal charges, including allegations of fraud related to COVID-19 unemployment benefits, misusing campaign funds, and lying about his personal finances on house disclosure reports. And look, we could fill an entire hour debunking all the other lies this congressman has told. His grandmother, for example, was not a victim of the Holocaust. Uh, he did not have employees who were killed in the Pulse nightclub shooting. And look, while it's fun to joke about this bizarre man, many of his lies have had real consequences, such as, do you remember this? He reportedly founded a bogus animal charity and he funneled donors hard-earned, generously donated cash to himself under one of his many pseudonyms. And Richard Ostoff joins me now. He's a disabled veteran who says that George Santos scammed him by stealing money that was meant for life-saving surgery for his dog, Sapphire. And Sapphire passed away months later. There's her ashes in that box there. Also with us, uh, Mark Gisano, author of The Fabulist, The Lying, Hustling, Grifting, Stealing, and Very American Legend of George Santos. Uh, Mark, uh, let me start with you. You started covering George Santos in 2019 as a columnist and writer at Newsday. Santos has gotten away with a lot over the course of his political career. Do you expect him to survive tomorrow's expulsion vote in the House? That's a high bar, two-thirds. You know, the only thing that I can say with certainty is that he's going to keep kind of blustering his way through and not resigning and not apologizing. It's what he's done the whole time. In my book, I write about how he even was sort of mooching off his grandmother in Brazil right before he got hit with this check fraud case, and then he kind of escapes back to New York. So this is his, his, uh, his way of living, is he just kind of rolls with the punches and keeps going. Richard, um, federal officials earlier this year were investing your allegations. When's the last time you heard from investigators, and where does your case stand? It was a while back, Jake. I think it was in uh, the end of March that I heard from them last time. Um, I just see, though, that the superseding indictment just came out months later uh, after his first indictment. Mine might still be in the works. I don't know. I'm hoping that it is. I mean, I'm not the only one that he scammed with his pet charity. Um, mm. I, I'm sure there's other people out there, and they're probably trying to bundle them all into another indictment, or another superseding indictment. And, Mark, you recently said that for your book you wanted to get inside Santos's head and figure out why he had lied about almost, almost everything. Did you ever... Did you ever get an answer? I think that's the most interesting part of this whole saga. Um, a lot of people I talked to told me that when they speak to him, he really seems to believe his own lies. Like one young politician who uh, Santos said, oh, I remember when I was your age, I made my first million already. And the politician looks at him and thinks he really believes that. So I think that that's a little bit what's going on in his head is that he's convinced himself of some of these things when he says them. Richard, uh, as somebody who was directly uh, swindled uh, and your dog died, you're, you're a veteran and you had a dog, service dog, comfort dog, what, what's your, your message to members of the House deciding how they're going to vote tomorrow? What, what, what do you want them to know if there are any wavering members of Congress? Like, for instance, uh, uh, I, I guess, you know, probably a compelling argument for some of them might be, look, he hasn't been convicted of anything yet. I don't want to set a precedent. What, what do you say to them? 
Well, he's convicted in the court of public opinion, if nothing else. Uh, he's got to go. He should have been gone as soon as they found out this stuff back in January. I mean, it's a disgrace that he won't step down. He's just being a defiant child at this point. Everybody wants him gone. He's not done anything for his constituents. His constituents want him gone. They didn't send him to Washington. They sent somebody else to Washington. And Mark, it's disgusting. And, you know, he's, he's up for expulsion. George, if you're expelled tomorrow, are you going to go and reapply for unemployment insurance again like you did th that you have your uh, $20,000, I think it was, that you stole? Are you going to reapply for un unemployment again? Yeah. Richard Ostoff and uh, Mark Tusana, thanks for your time uh, today. Um, Richard, did you ever get another dog? I have three dogs <laughs> now, Jake. Okay. Yeah, um, I still miss my sapphire so much. She was different than, I mean, it take almost three of them now to fill that hole in my heart. But, I'm just uh, glad you got another. That's all. I, I just got another one when all this went down in uh, January and February. North Shore Animal League uh, got a hold of me through the Howard Stern show, and they got me my little cinder boy. Okay. Uh, he's about a year old now, so he's okay. giving his older sisters a run for their money. Okay. I just, you know, nothing will fill Sapphire's the hole in your heart from Sapphire, but I, I just wanted to make sure you got, you got some replacements. Coming up next, the new gag order back on Donald Trump coming with a warning from the judge. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number Limited Edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. In our law and justice lead, a New York court has reinstated Donald Trump's gag order in his ongoing $250 million civil fraud trial. This means Trump cannot make public statements about any court staff during the continuation of the trial. The trial judge first issued the gag order after Trump made derogatory and false comments about a court clerk on Truth Social. An appellate judge then paused the gag order while the appeals process played out. Also in our Law and Justice lead, CNN has learned that Kenneth Chesbro, the attorney behind Trump's fake electors plot, who has already pleaded guilty in Georgia, is now cooperating with prosecutors in Nevada. CNN's Zachary Cohen is with me. Zach, first of all, I didn't even know there was a 
thing going on in Nevada. But what does Chesbro's cooperation in Nevada mean for the investigation? Yeah, Jake, we've actually seen in five different states, uh, state-level prosecutors open these criminal investigations, specifically focused on the people who served as those fake Trump electors. They signed those certificates. And Chesbro, who already pleaded guilty in Georgia, is now cooperating with prosecutors in Nevada, and he can actually take them inside some of his conversations that we know he had with these Republican officials who were organizing um, these other electors to show up and sign these false certificates. And this is a criminal investigation, just like the ones in Michigan, just like the one in Georgia, that could result in criminal charges. And I think the fact that uh, Chesborough is now cooperating is a sign that this probe is not only ramping up, but it could uh, result in a charging decision here pretty soon. So this is interesting. So Chesbro has already pleaded guilty in the Georgia elections case. As part of his negotiation uh, in that case, he negotiated being able to travel as part of his probation. Is this why? So that he could so that he could work with other states prosecuting the fake electors? So as part of his probation in Georgia, Chesbro was not allowed to travel to anywhere the judge said that he couldn't, right? And so he's had to ask permission to go to specific places. Those places include, as far as a judge orders or this week, Arizona, Nevada, and Washington, D.C. All three of those places have ongoing criminal investigations related to efforts to overturn the 2020 election. We know the fake electors investigation in Nevada is happening. Arizona also apparently wants to talk to Chesbro as well. And we know Jack Smith is doing his case in Washington, D.C. and is scheduled to go to trial in March. We could potentially see him want to talk to Chesbro now that he's pled guilty in Georgia. Too bad there are no fake electors in uh, Hawaii or California, I guess, with the... Uh winter winter months uh, approaching in uh, in wisconsin all right zach cohen thanks so much appreciate it coming up next was it a hate crime one of the palestinian uh, palestinian students shot describes exactly what happened when that gunman opened fire on him and his friends stay with us in our national lead one of the three palestinian students shot over the weekend while walking down a street in burlington vermont tell cnn that he and his friends had less than a second to respond after encountering this gunman. CNN's Jason Carroll has more details as well as the latest on the gunman who is in custody and could potentially face federal hate crime charges. It really felt like I was in a living nightmare. Kinan Abdel Hamid sat with his mother at his side as he recounted the chilling details surrounding how he and his two friends survived being shot while out for a walk. It was almost surreal how quickly he did it. These are just three regular kids, best friends who grew up from childhood. None of the three deserve this. Nobody deserves this. Their nightmare began Saturday night when Abdel Hamid, Hishan Artani, and Tashin Ali Ahmad, all 20-year-old college students in the U.S., went to visit one of the young men's relatives in Burlington, Vermont, for Thanksgiving break. The three went for a walk, two were wearing traditional Palestinian scarves and were speaking a mix of English and Arabic when they say a man suddenly stepped off a porch and opened fire. He didn't hesitate uh, without a word to g just run down the stairs of the porch, pull out a pistol and start shooting. He shot Tahsin first. And uh, that's when I heard uh, his thud on the ground and him start screaming. That was kind of my signal to uh, make a run for it. Artani suffered the most serious injuries with a bullet lodged in his spine. Ali Ahmad was shot in the chest while Abdel Hamid was hit in his right glute. He spoke to CNN about how he was able to run and ask for help. He shot, he shot Hisham 
I was able to jump to the fence of one of the houses, but that's when he, I believe that's when he shot me. I was actually limping uh, towards another house with the lights on. They opened the door. I was like, please call 911. I think both my, uh, both my friends might have been shot. Investigators found the shooter, 48-year-old Jason Eaton, the day after the shooting at his apartment. He has pleaded not guilty to three counts of attempted second-degree murder. In an interview with the Daily Beast, Eaton's mother said her son has had mental health issues. The victim's family says they believe the shooting was motivated by hate. They fled the West Bank for the safety of the United States. Our thanks to Jason Carroll for that report. Coming up next, the new post on X from Texas Governor Greg Abbott that only puts further strain on the migrant crisis in some of the biggest cities in the United States. In today's national lead, the state of Texas lost a legal battle and now cannot stop the Biden administration from removing the razor wire that Texas placed along the U.S. border. Meanwhile, Texas Governor Greg Abbott is moving even more migrants out of his state and into Democratic sanctuary cities. Abbott listed the locations and the numbers of migrants on X, which includes 20,000 migrants to Chicago alone. Migrants are sleeping in airports, at police stations, and in tents. The city is trying to help, but faces another challenge as overnight temperatures hover above freezing in Chicago. Here's CNN's Whitney Wild. As temperatures dipped into the low teens with wind chills of around zero this week, many migrants living on the street found Chicago's unfamiliar climate unforgiving. This man said he has been living in a tent and now feels sick. Lately, I've been having pain in my chest, he says, and I need medicine to help me with a fever. Okay, 99.1. With help from a translator, Dr. Amanda Bradkey offers care to migrants awaiting placement at a shelter. So a lot of what we're seeing is upper respiratory infections, whether that be a different virus or we're seeing a lot of strep throat. I'm also seeing some pneumonia. More than 900 migrants are still living at police stations and airports, down from more than 3,000 earlier this fall. The pace of new arrivals has slowed but not stopped. We were there as a bus dropped off dozens of migrants at an already crowded police station. More than 23,000 migrants have arrived in Chicago since August 2022, much of the influx driven by Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who says northern cities should take on more migrants to ease the strain at the border. We've never been in a situation like this, right? All this is unprecedented. Older person Andre Vasquez heads the city council's committee on immigrant and refugee rights. What is your biggest fear? I mean, my, my biggest fear thinking about it right now, winter time is the most immediate. Snow's going to hit. If we don't find decompression and really find other spaces for folks to live in and get to work, um, it's really concerning. City officials are opening more shelters and phasing in a 60-day limit on stays. Mayor Brandon Johnson says the city is partnering with more than a dozen faith groups to take migrants off the street. We cannot abandon families and asylum seekers and let them go through Chicago's winter alone. Now the state is funding a massive military-grade tent in the Brighton Park neighborhood to house migrants, despite fierce opposition from some residents and questions about whether the area, a former industrial site, is safe. Older woman Julia Ramirez represents Brighton Park. When we're thinking about the most vulnerable, whether it's the residents of Brighton Park or asylum seekers, 
they deserve to have a humane and dignified process to make sure they get shelter. And our thanks to Whitney Wilde for that report. Just moments ago, we saw a Red Cross caravan arriving at the Rafah crossing between Gaza and Egypt, believed to be carrying six hostages, Israelis. Can this scene be repeated? The very latest on negotiations happening right now to make it happen so the war does not resume in just a few hours. That's next. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, payback is a, well, you know the rest. Ahead, the brand new report that explains why Donald Trump did not come to the rescue of Kevin McCarthy when his fellow Republicans dethroned him as House Speaker. Plus, is TikTok suppressing the posts that the Chinese government doesn't like? CNN digs into the data, comparing Instagram and TikTok data that the chair of the Select House China Committee will be diving into at a hearing tonight to see how the communist nation might be manipulating data and your children. And leading this hour, six more hostages are freed by Hamas. And back in Israel, Israeli officials say they range from 17 to 41 years old. And they join two other women who were released earlier today. According to officials, their names uh, will be, uh, according to officials, they could be the last hostages released for now as the pause in fighting between Hamas and Israel is set to expire at midnight. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel right now trying to negotiate a deal to hold off the fighting and get more hostages released, including eight Americans kidnapped by Hamas for an agonizing 55 days ago. Let's begin with CNN's Matthew Chance, uh, live for us in Tel Aviv. Uh, Matthew, if the pause is not extended, how quickly do we expect hostilities to resume? Well, it could be very soon. Uh, in fact, the, the Israeli government have said that they're prepared to move almost immediately uh, to resume that military action if there is no extension of this hostage exchange deal. Uh, yesterday, it ran up to the wire as well, and the Israeli military put a deadline of 7 a.m. local time before they would uh, you know, resume military activity inside the Gaza Strip. And so, you know, that's about seven hours from now, about midnight your time, uh, Eastern time, uh, over there. So there's still some time, there's still a few hours left uh, for a last minute deal to be hammered out. And I expect that behind the scenes, diplomatic efforts are in overdrive to try and make sure that this hostage deal that has gone on for seven consecutive days will go on for an eighth because it's, you know, it's, it's in the interests of all parties. Israel is getting significant numbers of its hostages out. And on the Palestinian side, in Gaza, they're getting prisoners released. Uh, and, of course, they're getting a, an important influx of humanitarian aid. Every day, this pause in the violence, this pause in the Israeli military operation um, uh, continues. And so, look, the hope is that this can go on for longer. But at the moment, there's no deal. And, you know, there's just a few hours to go, seven hours at most, we think, uh, before time literally runs out on um, bringing the parties together for an extension of this deal, Jake. Matthew, within the hour, six newly released hostages crossed 
uh, back into Israel. Two other hostages were released earlier today. Is that it? Or do we expect any other hostages today? Yeah, we think that's it. Um, uh, that's eight hostages altogether. And remember, Israel set um, uh, the, the number of 10 hostages that it wanted every day in order for there to be a 24-hour pause in the military operation. There were, there were two um, Israeli hostages released um, in addition to the 10 yesterday. And so they brought that number forward, it seems, uh, and made 10. But, I mean, the, the point is... It's getting increasingly difficult for Hamas, it seems, under the terms of the current deal, which basically focuses on women and children, uh, to gather enough hostages in a single day uh, to make this swap. There are still about 140 hostages inside Gaza, and so there are still Israeli hostages there, as well as other nationalities as well, we understand, who can be swapped. And Hamas is, you know, sort of in charge in, in vast swathes of Gaza. But when it comes to the adult males and it comes to the hostages who are members of the Israeli Defence Forces, the Israeli military, then, you know, look, what Israeli le legislators are saying to me is that Hamas is going to want a different equation. It's going to want a different deal. At the moment, it's getting three prisoners released, for instance, for every one Israeli that's set free. If you're talking about much more higher value, from their point of view, individuals like Israeli soldiers... They're going to want more than that. Um, and so that is a process of negotiation that the Israelis say they're willing to enter into uh, if there are more hostages being released. But, you know, it still has to be agreed and it hasn't been yet. All right, Matthew Chance in Tel Aviv for us. Thanks so much. Even though the pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas has officially lasted for seven days, we are also seeing an upswing in tension and violence. Hamas is taking credit for today's terrorist attack at a bus stop in Jerusalem that left three innocent civilians dead and seven wounded, including some Americans. CNN's Ben Wiedemann is in Jerusalem. Uh, the attackers who were also killed afterwards were, were brothers, Ben? That's right. They were 38-year-old Murad Nimr and his brother, 30-year-old uh, Ibrahim. Now, we've seen video of the actual attack taking place. Uh, what you see is their car, which they drove from Sur al-Bahar, which is an eastern suburb of Jerusalem, drives up right in front of this bus station. The two get out and just start opening fire on people waiting for the bus. This was at rush hour in the morning. And uh, you see... They go back, they try to get back in their car after shooting people, and then uh, it appears bystanders, one perhaps a soldier, uh, one a civilian, draw their weapons and kill them uh, on the spot. So three people dead, seven people injured. And in the aftermath of this, uh, Prime Minister Neta Benjamin Netanyahu uh, said, yes, we should be giving more weapons to civilians. And his words were echo echoed by National Security Minister uh, Itamar Ben-Gavir. And this really underscores the level of tension here, even though at the moment, at the moment, uh, the guns have gone silent in Gaza itself. And as far as the situation uh, in Gaza as people watch the clock, as the clock ticks down to 7 a.m. Uh, tomorrow, the hundreds of thousands of people who have been made homeless, who have been displaced, particularly from the north of Gaza, are struggling to survive. There isn't much left to retrieve from the moonscape that was Zahra City in central Gaza. Just some scraps of wood pulled from the ruins the odds and ends that were once people's lives. 
We've come to get what we can, says Amjad Ashanti. The kids' things, our clothing, whatever we can get from under the rubble. Here, I found this, my daughter's toy. No one can live here anymore. The destruction, total. Life in Gaza has been reduced to the basics, a pre-industrial existence where people have become hewers of wood where they can find it, and drawers of water, even if that water is barely potable. Bassem el goes out early every day to collect the firewood his wife uses to prepare meals. The United Nations estimates around 80% of Gaza's population has been displaced. More than a million jammed into schools, converted into shelters. People here are living on top of one another, says Bassem. The place is full of filth. All these kids are going to get sick. The World Health Organization reports that without adequate hygiene, health care and food, disease is spreading. Bassem's wife, Khitam, tears up the daily bread, old and stale, to be made into a thin soup with lentils. We used to feed this to the sheep. Now we give it to the children, she says. There's no more room at this school in Maghazi, central Gaza. Um Shedi and her extended family of more than 20 sleep in the back of a truck, protected from the elements by a plastic tarp. She fled from northern Gaza with only what she could carry, desperate now to find enough food to feed her children. When my son tells me, I'm hungry, what can I say, she asks. We try, but we can't find anything. Our life is hard. Hard, perhaps, is an understatement. Welcome to the apocalypse. Now, Ben Wiedemann, CNN, Jerusalem. And our thanks to Ben Wiedemann for that report. The twisted minds of the terrorists of Hamas today released a brief hostage video of a man named Yardane Bibas. Bibas is, of course, the father of the very youngest hostage, 10-month-old Kfir, uh, as well as his brother, 4-year-old Ariel. Uh, Hamas has claimed, without producing any evidence as of yet, that those two boys, as well as their mother, who were all taken hostage back on October 7th, that they were all killed by an Israeli airstrike on Gaza. We do not know, know that to be true. We do not know that they're dead even. Here is an image from the hostage video released today. We're not gonna show the video, of course. It's pure Hamas propaganda. It does show the father, Bibas, uh, pleading with Israeli officials to bring him and his family home as soon as possible. He was kidnapped on October 7th. He has been held separate from his family since then. The last time I spoke with uh, Yael Engel Lichi, her nephew Ofer Engel, was being held hostage by Hamas after he was kidnapped while visiting his girlfriend at Kibbutz Be'eri. He since marked his 18th birthday in captivity. After more than 50 days being held by Hamas, you're now seeing some of the very first photos taken of Ofer being reunited with his parents. He was one of the 12 hostages released yesterday, and his aunt Yael Engel Lichi joins me now. Um, thank you for being here. I don't get a lot of opportunities to do good news uh, and since October 7th. Uh, so this is a nice respite. I'm grateful to be able to show these pictures of your family uh, back together. Now, understanding that after more than 50 days of being in captivity, you know, expectations have to be uh, tempered. H how's he doing? 
Hi, thank you for having me again. Um, we, I saw him today for the first time after we saw him last night uh, around 12 o'clock p.m. at night, midnight. They just came into Israel. It was so exciting. I can't, I can't imagine and I, can't, I didn't know you can feel all, the, all those feelings together uh, at the same time in such a... So we went to, to visit him today. Um, I was really frightened to see him because, you know, after 54 days, we saw him yesterday on TV. He looked a little bit pale and much more thinner. But he's alive and he's walking on his feet. And when I saw his mother and father hug him, I knew the hard part was over. And we start a new episode of recovering and healing and hugging him. It was not easy to see him. Yeah. Um, I think it's, I looked in his eyes, as I told you before, last time, he has such a big green eyes. And sorry, it was not the same. It was not the same. He looks good. He was smiling at us. We hugged him. But we saw he had, he had been through something very, very hard. Yeah. And he told us things from there. Um, but, but he's alive and he's back home. So not home yet in the yeah. hospital. I mean, how he looks, obviously you know this, but how he looks today is not how he's going to look in a month, right? I mean, Emily Hand, that little girl, that Irish-Israeli girl, you know, her eyes, she has that thousand-yard stare, but how she looks today isn't going to help, isn't going to be how she looks in a month, um, necessarily. We can always hope that, you know, he'll, he'll get better. Has he shared any details about um, his experience? Yes, he... Actually, he, he, he really remembers every, I think, every hour of these 54 days. Uh, we have been there, I have been there only for a short while because we need to give him space and, and they're doing a lot of tests to him. But as generally, I can say that they did a lot of psychological uh, uh, terror on him. They kept telling him he won't go come home. Nobody cares about him. They kept telling him that everyone, uh, all his girlfriend's family was, was dead, um, that his government doesn't seem to take care of. And he was held in a, I think so, in an apartment. So he was not underground. Um, he was not alone. So I think he had a lot, a lot of luck. You know, it's funny to say, but he had luck being with some other hostages. Hostages, but it it were forty five days, and I asked him, "How did you count the days? How did you know what day it is?" Because he didn't have the chance to see television or radio or nothing, and he told me every day he he bited another finger. So as the days went through, he knows that his nails, not his fingers. So he knew how many days went over. And they were all kept in a small room. They had a lot, uh, very little food, but 
it's not what the physical terms, it was the psychological terms. He looked so afraid. And I, I went there in the hospital and I saw some other children that just went out uh, today and yesterday. And I thought to myself, it's not reasonable that children, uh, just innocent children were taken and kept there for 54 days. It's not normal. It's no. not normal. And we, we couldn't stop crying with him. It was... I can't, I, I can't explain, I don't have the words to explain how horrific it is, really. Was he, was he in the home? Was, really he, was he in the home of a, of, a, of a family? Was he kept in the home of a family? I mean, did he say anything about who he was staying with? We just know he was staying uh, uh, with some, some people that, uh, that guarded them all the time. Uh, they weren't uh, allowed to go outside. They told him to whisper all the time because they told him that if he will uh, talk loudly, uh, the Israeli army will bomb this house and kill him. So my brother told me that this morning after he slept a few hours, he wake up and he just, whis he just didn't speak loudly. He just whispered. And he told him again and again, it's okay, you can talk yeah. normally. Yeah. You're back home. And then around eight o'clock in the morning, my brother sent us, sent us a picture of him sleeping in the bed and said, all we wanted is to see our kids sleep again in, his, in, in a safe bed. Yeah. I tell you, it's, it's not normal. And I heard the, the item before, and I really sorry for all the people that lost their home there in Gaza. But the world should understand that what happened here on October 7th I hear more and more stories of hostages going out and what they did to other people and what they did to the women there. It's really, it's really, it's really horrible. And there are some people that won't get over that. Not in a month, not in a year. Yeah, no, I and know. I, I hope it's really, it's not, it's not something children must go through. Uh, um, what Hamas, None of them, not yeah. here and not here. What Hamas... And you know, today's... Today, go, yeah, ahead, go, sorry. Ahead, go ahead, no, please. Today, terror attack that happened in Jerusalem. Yeah. The two Hamas took responsibility of, so the, the two terrorists made it, they just live 200 meters from us. Is that right? So I, my, my daughter asked myself, it's not only in Gaza, how can I go by bus to school? If I know there are terrorists near near my house, and it must stop all this situation, must stop the world should understand that the Hamas what they're doing, uh, taking people like that, and I, I think I sent you the the uh, small movie that uh, Ophir meets his girlfriend Yuval, and I, I was there when they met, and it was. It was so painful because she was so happy to see him, but she just came back from the memorial day of their two nieces and aunt, and her father still kept there. Yeah. So it's awful the, what Hamas did to so many people, and in many ways is doing to their own people. Yeah, uh, Errol Engel, uh, Lichi, uh, thank you so much. Please come back when Ofer is ready to talk, or at least come back and show us pictures of him when his, the light is back in his eyes and his smile is back because I know he's going to get better. And we're so happy that
that he's back, and we're so back. We're so happy that he's alive. We hope so, yeah. Thank you so much for yes, being with us. Yes, we too. We too. We're so happy. Thank you. Thank you so much. Coming up, the new report today about a tense call between Donald Trump and Congressman Kevin McCarthy. Wait until you hear why Trump reportedly did not want to help McCarthy fight to keep his seat as House Speaker. Plus, the new attempts to keep political ads produced with AI-generated images off your TV screen. Stay with us. New reporting from the Washington Post describes a tense phone call between former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Donald Trump in the days following McCarthy's ousting from the speakership. In the call, Trump explained why he did not stop McCarthy from being removed as speaker. The Post reporting, quote, during the call, Trump lambasted McCarthy for not expunging his two impeachments and not endorsing him in the 2024 presidential campaign, according to people familiar with the conversation. F you, McCarthy claimed to have then told Trump, although he didn't say F, you know. A spokesperson for McCarthy said that he did not swear at the former president and Trump declined to comment. We should note, of course, that McCarthy and presumably his spokespeople are a little fast and loose with the truth on occasion. My panel's with me now. Uh, David Urban, uh, what do you make of what do you make of the story? I find it shocking. I find it shocking. <laughs> I find it pretty, course, pretty, pretty easy to believe. Absolutely. I find it believable. There's, yeah. You know, look, uh, the former president is a scorekeeper, as we all know, right? He's got a in his mind, he's got a tally of who's done me right and who's done me wrong. And the latter list is much longer than the former list, right? Yeah. And, uh, and he is not shy about, you know, keeping score and letting people know when he's unhappy with them. And, and very rarely is he, I think, does he throw, there's, there's not a lot of people he's thrown bones to, right? And plaudits. And so I could see that conversation occurring uh, quite easily. And yet, we got from Liz Cheney's book, Audie, the, the fact that uh, we, we remember Kevin McCarthy threw Donald Trump that lifeline in January 2021 when it looked like the Republican Party was finally going to break with him after the insurrection. And McCarthy went down to Mar-a-Lago, posed for that picture. And then Liz Cheney had that famous conversation, now famous from her book, where she's like, Kevin, what the hell? And he said something along the lines of like, he's depressed, he's not eating. He told me he's not eating. Told me. He's so not, caring. I he's mean, not, he's not <laughs> yeah, I mean, of Still all the like telenovelas in Washington, this is probably the least interesting to me. I would love to see the Spanish version. Honestly, Spanish. but but I do think like this is what happens when you have a transactional relationship and you aren't prepared to deal in a transactional way. One person in this party is like, do what I need when I need it. The other person is like, have you had a snack? Also, can you help me now? Like, it's just not understanding what is at stake. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've never seen political roadkill, but it does feel like this might be what it looks Kevin like. Kevin McCarthy, you're calling Kevin McCarthy political. I just look. think, what has he gained out of this year? Urban, tell me. Now look, he's had a tough year, right? I mean, Kevin McCarthy's had a tough year. He's done, in Kevin McCarthy's defense, he elected basically the entire House of Representatives, right? And then uh, they kind of conveniently forgot that he got him elected, a right? Yeah. What, did, what did he get? What did he get? No, that's, right. no, no, that's my point. My point is, my point is he, he literally spent millions of dollars to help Nancy Mace and you know, Eli Crane and these people to get across the finish line and yeah. get to be the majority. And they were, first and they, right. and they were the first to throw him over Yeah, the but vote. at the yeah. end of the day, who was in charge? Donald Trump. Right. Oh, at I the mean, end of the day, Kevin McCarthy I don't know if could not govern. Does he have well, any couldn't govern, at all? Couldn't, does McCarthy? Yeah. I don't think so. Oh, I mean, he's got, yes, he's got he made, yes, he has absolutely raised a lot of money, no yep. question about it. And at the end of the day, members care about that because it costs money to run for Congress, yep. of course. But you're only as but, influential and as powerful as 
the role you have. Well, and he's been, yeah. he is, has been removed from that in part because Donald Trump wouldn't throw him a lifeline because, well, shocking, Donald Trump doesn't care about anybody. And, and but clearly, Trump. yeah, clearly they didn't care a bunch because Eli Crane wouldn't be a congressman and Nancy Mace wouldn't be in the Congress if it weren't for Kevin McCarthy. So he literally saved him. But in terms of congressional stories, 2023, it's his. The story, yeah. the rise and fall of this person. So but, you guys remember Mad Libs from when you were, kid, yeah. when we were kids? I was playing last night Noun. with my son, actually. Okay, so, last night, not kidding, last so night. So everybody uh, under uh, 30, 40 won't, won't get this reference. Do you remember Madeline? Everyone under 60, you said? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so in any case, this is a news story from, from Mad Libs, but news, breaking news. Just this hour, Tucker Carlson announced on the Roseanne Barr podcast that he is endorsing Trump for president. Thoughts? I mean, big yeah, shocking again. Big is true. <laughs> really, like, like huge, shocking, shocking news. Okay. Well, like, and, I'm, and I'm shocked that Elon Musk just doesn't come out and endorse Trump. Just come on. <laughs> he's like, after you know, he's, he's like, I'm voting for Biden, but I'm not going to tell you I'm voting for. It. Yeah. By the way, did you did you see Elon Musk uh, at the at the the interview with? Yeah. Yes. The you, New York Times Deal Summit. Yeah. Deal Summit. Yeah. The interview with, uh, with Aaron Andrew Sorkin. Ross Sorkin, yeah. which is yeah. a great interview. Yeah. Sorkin did Especially a great since job. he called him Jonathan at one point. Yes. I'm only here because you're my friend. <laughs> did Jonathan. you see that? Yes. Yeah. I'm only and then Andrew you're my friend, Jonathan. Said, I'm Andrew. I'm Andrew. So and then good. Elon went on to tell Disney to f off and not to not to advertise. Not to blackmail. Don't blackmail. On his platform anymore. So which is a very this is an interesting uh, tactic for a CEO to tell. But what do you make? I mean, what do you make of that? And and, the, and then the argument was, what do you you know? You're you're going to destroy your platform, the, and and yep. Musk basically said, well, the platform will be destroyed, but the world yeah. will know it was Bob well, Disney that did it. The world will know. I mean, he's always used this argument about free speech, and again, it's one of those fundamental misunderstandings about free speech. In the Constitution, it protects you from government overreach. When you're just, just a, a rando with a business, and your business <laughs> is relies on advertising, they have the right to walk away. That's their free For, speech. Fortunately, he's got like a hundred plus billion dollars that he can burn for a while. Yeah. But there's also an argument that he has essentially wanted to tear the place down since he got there, right? I mean, he tried to back out of the deal initially because he recognized that it either wasn't going to be profitable in the way he wanted or he wasn't going to be able to exert the influence that he wanted uh, with the board and with the advertisers. So it, it's sort of hard to, uh, to, to think that he had a legitimate business plan from the start. I think he wanted to influence the discourse in the public square. Yeah. That's what he cares about. Yeah. So he tells you know, New York Times deal book that Disney can F off it's and that's satisfying to, to him. But that's not I, think, I, think, I think people cheer for that. I think, yeah. I think people on X were cheering. <laughs> on X, yeah. yeah, the paid people, the paid so checks. So before we go, I, of course, it is uh, Audi Cornish Thursday, as we, as we all know. <laughs> Still the, trying to make it a thing. And my my favorite day of the week, Audi Cornish Thursday, yeah. and your new podcast dropped today. Everybody should check out Audi Cornish's uh, a podcast. Uh, it's about uh, the UN climate conference. It uh, is. It's about climate narratives, the stories we tell ourselves about whether we should panic, cope, or adapt. And we're talking to people who make movies, video games, books to talk about how they talk about climate change in a way that isn't depressing and doesn't make you want to walk away. T tell us what should, we, what should we do with those three. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm awaiting word. I mean, you tune have to the podcast. Tune in. Oh, <laughs> wherever you get your podcast. See, I'm learning. The podcast is called The Assignment with uh, Audie Cornish, and you should download it anywhere you get your podcast. I get them. I, I'm a. I, I get them from the the podcast app on my phone. 
I like it. Is that where you do? Yes, you... I thought you were going to say the radio. You made like a like a hand motion. <laughs> I got nervous. Mad libs, radio. Oh, yeah, like where are we? <laughs> not Fireside chat. <laughs> I'm not like a prop guy. <laughs> I don't know. I'm smash okay, it come, another another hip reference, <laughs> Gallagher. All right, thanks guys for being here. Okay, next up on the lead, the new attempt to attempt to crack down on deep fake content and political ads as we come up on this big election year. Stay with us. In our tech lead, President Joe Biden's presidential campaign is looking to stay one step ahead of deep fakes. A new task force is preparing legal responses to misleading images and videos generated by artificial intelligence. CNN's Donnie O'Sullivan joins us now with more. Donnie, what sort of deep fakes does the campaign expect to encounter and how can they fight it legally? Hey, Jake. Yeah, look, the Internet right now is awash with uh, artificially intelligence, artificial intelligence uh, content that's been created uh, using AI, whether it's video, images, uh, audio, even music. Um, and earlier this year, one of the early campaign ads from uh, the RNC actually was entirely uh, was entirely full uh, of AI images. Have a look. This just in, we can now call the 2024 presidential race for Joe Biden. This morning, an emboldened China invades Taiwan. Financial markets are in free fall as 500 regional banks have shuttered their doors. So all the images you saw in that piece, all, all, the, all the images you saw there, um, is an imagined version uh, of a dystopian uh, version uh, if, if Biden were to be uh, re-elected. Uh, the concern, of course, though, now is that AI could be used for more nefarious purposes. They, it could be used uh, to make it sound like a candidate or a candidate surrogate uh, has said something or done something incriminating, potentially uh, politically damaging to a campaign. Uh, in the case of the Biden campaign, it could be the president himself, uh, his son, Hunter Biden. Um, a, a tape might emerge. We all know how uh, critical at times uh, tapes in political campaigns can be. Uh, the issue, of course, uh, here is that uh, the, there, is, there is no law essentially out banning uh, this type of deceptive content. Uh, U.S. election law currently prohibits um, campaigns fraudulently misrepresenting uh, other candidates or parties, uh, but that does not extend right now to deep fake content. So what the Biden campaign is trying to figure out is ways how if a video or image does emerge or an audio tape, how they can try and get it taken down off the internet. And they've been looking at um, existing laws, even novel uses uh, of, of some American laws, but also looking to Europe. Um, if videos or images are posted or hosted on platforms uh, in Europe, they will use new, they, they plan on invoking uh, new strict uh, European internet laws to get that content taken down. But Jake, as you know, I mean, once a video is out there, an image, piece of audio, uh, it's very hard to put the genie back in the bottle. Yeah. Tony O'Sullivan, thanks so much. Does TikTok suppress information that the Chinese government doesn't like? See what we found when we compared popular social media posts on that platform versus Instagram. That's next. In our tech lead, the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party is continuing to investigate China's strategy to control and manipulate content online, especially on Chinese-owned TikTok. I want to take you back to a year ago when I interviewed the head of public policy for TikTok, Michael Beckerman. I asked him if TikTok censors content 
on the platform, especially content critical of the Chinese Communist Party. The fear is the U.S. State Department obviously has accused China of genocide, holding up to two million ethnic Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities in con- detention camps, detention camps, concentration camps uh, in the Xinjiang province, and that that's what TikTok was censoring, not necessarily references to uh, the German uh, concentration camps. First of all, do you, do you acknowledge that the Chinese government has these Uyghurs and others in concentra- concentration camps? Well, that's not something that I, that I focus on, but I can tell you that for content moderation is done from the United States, we do not censor content on behalf of any government. So we at The Lead and CNN looked at some data that we believe is going to be used at the hearing of the Select Committee on the Strategic Competition between U.S. and China this evening. We looked at that data and we crunched the numbers for ourselves and, and we took the total number of hashtags on both Instagram and on TikTok, data that could be found on each company's website, and we compared the number of posts on one platform over the other. And let's review. And a reminder here that Instagram did launch in 2010 and TikTok launched in 2018. So the hashtag labored Uyghurs, which is the ethnic minority that the Chinese government is oppressing and accused of sending to detention or concentration camps, that hashtag is 10.4 times higher on Instagram. The hashtag Tiananmen, which alludes to the 1989 pro-democracy protests in China, the left hundreds dead when the Chinese government suppressed it, is 153 times more likely to have posts on Instagram than on TikTok. For every one post on TikTok that says hashtag Tiananmen, there are 153 posts on Instagram. So yes, the content exists on TikTok, but there's far less of it on TikTok than on other social media apps. And that seems very convenient for the Chinese Communist Party. We reached out to TikTok for a comment and they say, hashtags are not the only metric for comparison. They say, look at video views. And they tell us that the views for hashtag Tiananmen are 3.4 million but views are 24.4 million for hashtag Tiananmen Square. So someone saw something about Tiananmen Square on TikTok. But there are over a billion people on TikTok. So should that view number be higher? So here's what they told us, quote, this comparison of hashtags is unequivocally inaccurate and has been cherry picked to advance a made up political agenda. Instagram has been around far longer than TikTok and has more users. so. In some cases, there will be more posts associated with certain hashtags. The fact is, this content has been viewed millions of times on TikTok TikTok in the past week alone. As anyone can see on the site for themselves, it is common knowledge that hashtags are generated and added to videos by users, not by TikTok, unquote. We'll be posting this segment on TikTok. We'll see how it does. The big question, of course, is TikTok doing the bidding of the Chinese government? There is an attempt tonight to get answers to that serious question. And the chairman of the Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party is gonna join me next after this quick break. We're back with our tech lead now and a closer look at how TikTok may be manipulating what you and your family and your kids see online. It's an issue at the center of a hearing being held tonight by the Select Committee on the Strategic Competition between the US and China, and we're joined by the chairman of that committee right now, Republican Congressman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin. Uh, Mr. Chairman, thanks for joining us. 
What has your committee discovered in terms of how the Chinese government might use TikTok to control the flow of information? Well, first of all, Jake, I want to say the analysis that you did in the previous segment was very important. And for TikTok to dispute the methodology does not make much sense because in mid-November, they were the ones who proposed this very methodology and pointed people to use these very same data of posts tied to hashtags. So it's simply using the methodology that TikTok themselves highlighted and you start to see these anomalies, why there are certain differences between Instagram and TikTok that don't make much sense. There could of course be an endogenous variable confounding the data, but right now we don't have an explanation for the anomaly. And I just found TikTok's response warranted further investigation. We're hoping to get into that tonight, but also tease out the connections between TikTok, their parent company, ByteDance, that owns them, and of course the connections between ByteDance and the Chinese Communist Party. And we have clear evidence that ByteDance has done the Chinese Communist Party's bidding. Uh, they shut down a news platform when the CCP said it failed to follow appropriate political direction. The head of ByteDance was forced to issue a groveling apology to the CCP uh, and vowed that future product lines would follow appropriate socialist party uh, direction. So clearly there is an intimate relationship between ByteDance and the CCP, which raises the question of whether we want to allow a platform like TikTok to be the dominant news platform in America. That's the bipartisan concern we have on the committee. And it's not just about allegedly suppressing news related to China, such as Tibet or Hong Kong, which I didn't even mention in that segment. Um, but some supporters of Israel have suggested that TikTok is not only uh, promoting anti-Israel sentiment, but just outright anti-Semitism, um, which also would feed into the Chinese government's anti-Western goals. Is there, is there evidence of that that you've seen? Well, if you just look at the data, uh, there's about you know, 50 to 1 skew in terms of pro-Palestinian versus pro-Israel content. Even if you just account for younger voters who might have a more pro-Palestinian skew or be less enthusiastic about supporting Israel, people under the age of 30, it doesn't align with what we know about basic polling data. So there is that. There's also a difference if you try to do that apples to apples comparison between Instagram and TikTok in this case. It's about a 5 to 1 post difference for Instagram and TikTok, whereas the average is usually two to one or in a band between one to one and 3.2 to one. So again, you have these anomalies that don't seem to make sense unless there's some other variable that TikTok can come up with. And again, I just want to stress, all that is is using the metrics, the goalposts that TikTok themselves put out in November when they started to get asked questions about anti-Semitism, which is rampant on their platform. And of course, there were particularly acute cases like people sharing Osama bin Laden's, Osama bin Laden's letters to America and praising the content therein. Right, and of course we should point out there's a big difference between criticizing Israel or being pro-Palestinian and like being anti-Semitic, which yes. is, those are three different things. You've described TikTok as digital fentanyl. And we know social media can be addicting. And look, TikTok is addicting. It's a great app. But TikTok in, in, in particular, because it is such a, uh, a well-done app, it, it's very popular, especially among younger Americans. And I just wonder, can the genie even be put back into the bottle? I think so. Uh, I think we can legislate a responsible solution to this issue of uh, social media apps that are controlled by 
foreign adversaries or countries of common concern and pair that with a positive framework for how we regulate cross-border data flows, which right now is the Wild West and we don't really have any regulatory process. To me, that's eminently possible. We're working on such legislation right now on the Hill, but you know, and while I grant that social media in general is a cesspool and it has adverse impacts on kids uh, uh, under the age of 30 in particular, the problem with TikTok, really the, the unique problem with TikTok, is its basic ownership structure, right? It is owned by ByteDance, which is beholden to the Chinese Communist Party. And even if you hate Facebook, or you hate Instagram, or you hate whatever social media company in America, the same thing is not true of those companies. So that is the core of the issue, as well as all the reports we've had of, about how data might be being used. And, and then again, just the basic point that TikTok is increasingly a news platform for young Americans. It's not just about the data, or it's not just about the spying or the espionage, it's whether we want to allow it to become the dominant news platform in America. And I think that's a risk we can't take. Yeah, and of course the Chinese are quite different with what their kids see on their version of TikTok, much more educational, much more controlled, much more limited in terms of uh, how much screen time they let their kids have. Before you go, I gotta ask, are you gonna vote to expel George Santos tomorrow? I'm, right now I'm a, a lean no, just because of the presidential concerns. I'm admittedly working through the entire ethics report right now. This would be unprecedented for someone who hasn't been convicted. Clearly he should have resigned, however. That would have been the right thing to do. It does not look like he's going to do that. I'm glad he's not running for re-election. He should not be a member of Congress. So I have to balance that against the new precedent we're setting here, which I fear, based on evidence we have from all these other things where we've broken precedent, it will ultimately be used, it will escalate, and both parties will just start to try and kick members out for, for things that are less severe than the ethical implications or the ethical uh, crimes of George Santos. All right, Chairman Mike Gallagher, thanks so much. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. One of the world's most famous soccer stars was just sued for a billion dollars. That's next. And our money lead, soccer star Cristiano Ronaldo, could pay more than one billion, with a B, billion dollars in a class action lawsuit for his ad campaign with crypto giant Binance. The lawsuit accuses Ronaldo of using, quote, deceptive statements to sell a collection of non-fungible tokens, or NFTs, last year. Just last week, Binance agreed to pay more than $4 billion in fines and penalties for enabling transactions linked to child sex abuse, narcotics, and terrorist financing. Notably, Ronaldo is still promoting Binance on X. Talk about an own goal. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.